a pretty simple idea. It did not take us all that long to think about it. You know, like it came to it came together in like a couple of days where it's like, oh, why doesn't it work like this? Yeah, that works. Like, okay, let's do that, right? Like, it was pretty simple. But um, definitely the 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 scale that Pith operates at today just would not have been possible if we hadn't come up with this full model. It's fascinating to me just watching the underlying technical stacks kind of shift from these earlier networks being much lower throughput, have longer block times, longer finalities, to these much higher throughput ecosystems that have much lower latency. And when you do that, you also have to upgrade everything else in the tech stack to make it also high throughput and low latency like oracles. And I, I think we're going through that entire process. And then once you do that, what type of unique applications can leverage all those components? Jayan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, looking forward to it. I, I think what Dural Labs has been building with Pith is super exciting. Uh, exciting time for the company with the airdrop that you guys recently did. Uh, just tremendous progress. And I think ultimately what Pith enables is just really new, interesting applications. And so really excited to have you on, excited to dive into all of it. Thank you so much for having me, Logan. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, yeah, I would love to just get a quick pulse check on like how things are internally at Dural Labs. Uh, you recently did the airdrop and I think anytime any company does an airdrop, there's lots of excitement, not only internally, but externally as well. Uh, if you could just give us a sneak peek behind the windows internally and how that is, uh, <laughs> you're viewing it. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, people are excited about it. You know, uh, we did the airdrop. We listed the token about two weeks ago. And um, that's a big milestone, you know, for any project, right? It's kind of like the beginning of decentralized governance and all these kinds of things. So, you know, it's it's really exciting in that perspective. And it's obviously something that, you know, the team has been working on for for a long time, right? And so whenever you get one of those milestones, I think it's... it's um, People are going to get jazzed up. And, you know, I think things really went quite well. Like you've seen airdrops where there's a lot of, you know, FUD on crypto Twitter or whatever. And like, seems like everything went really smoothly. So um, really couldn't be happier. That is amazing. Yeah. The crypto t Twitter is a funny place. I think uh, sometimes it affects real life and sometimes it's a over amplification of really dumb things. So uh, it's hard to parse that apart sometimes. For sure. Yeah, um, I think it, it is. It's like sometimes there's like really smart takes on there, you know, but like sometimes it's just like it's FUD. It's just like, you know, random guy saying something and someone amplifying. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe before like diving into the tech stack of what Dural Labs has built with Pith, can you share a little bit more about just like your background, how you got into the crypto industry uh, and how you actually ended up building one of the more interesting technologies within the cryptosphere? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, my background is um, I actually have a PhD in um, machine learning and natural language processing. So I used to work on kind of like dialogue models, um, I guess, before they were cool. And um, so that's kind of my, my traditional background. And I've been working that for a number of years, you know, I was at a startup, we got acquired by Microsoft, like, um, kind of did the whole thing. But uh, I've always been interested in crypto. I've been interested in crypto since um, 2014 or so when um, that's when I first got into it, because uh, it's actually kind of a funny story. Like there was this Carnegie Mellon professor who I was at Carnegie Mellon, I was doing my PhD. 
And there's this rumor that, you know, he'd made a bunch of money in cryptocurrency. I'm like, we didn't really know what he did, but like people were interested. Right. And, you know, your grad students, like some extra beer money would, would be nice. So, um, so, you know, we got interested. We started thinking like, Oh, like what can we do in cryptocurrency? This is interesting. And so, um, you know, I thought about it and I was like, you know what, I can do some like programmatic trading. So, uh, I sat down and I built a programmatic trading system for cryptocurrencies back in 2014. This was super early days. I mean, this is before Coinbase had an exchange, you know, like I remember when the Coinbase exchange launched and I was like, oh, cool. Like, this is awesome. So, um, so it was pretty early days. Uh, it wasn't very competitive back then. So, so I, I did reasonably well. Um, you know, I, so I ran that for a few years, um, shut it down around 2018 when like the pros started playing. Um, but you know, I've been interested in the space ever since I've been following along, you know, following the technology and things like that. And, um, you know, I was really interested in like Ethereum, the promise of kind of building these applications that run on the blockchain, but you know, the whole time I was in it, right. Like it always felt like vaporware. I mean, people never really were, um, building these apps. Right. And then, so in, in 2020, you know, someone showed me compound and I was like, oh, wait, this is a real application running on the blockchain that does a useful thing. And I was like, okay, like, this is really interesting. Like now's the time to like get involved. And so I was kind of looking around for what to do. Um, a friend of mine from college actually worked at jump and he just joined the crypto division. He was like, you got to come check this out. This is, this is crazy. So I was interested, you know, I threw my hat in the ring. Um, I got a job and, uh, you know, it was crazy. I mean, it's bull market, you know, everyone's running around, right? Like everything's on fire, but I sat down, you know, I started doing some research, um, kind of developing some of the mechanisms behind Pith, and um, that kind of evolved to, to where I am today. That's amazing. Uh, maybe in terms of like framing the conversation a little bit, just in terms of what were some of the things either from Jump or e either in trading that you learned from like high frequency standpoint that didn't really map too well to blockchains and ultimately maybe created the like genesis or the birth for Pith. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that um, there's actually a couple different things that, you know, as someone who's kind of deeply versed in financial markets that didn't really make sense when we looked at oracles um, and how they're designed, you know, back in the day. And um, a couple of things, those things are, first of all, that financial market data is really valuable. So the big exchanges um, make billions of dollars a year on market data. And uh, you know, all the hedge funds and things like that are basically paying subscription fees to these exchanges, right? And so if you looked at how oracles were built kind of back in the day, they kind of assumed that all data was free. It's like, look, we're going to build a system that goes and it scrapes the web and it gets the price from, you know, three different websites and it posts that on the blockchain. And, you know, I get why people build a system like that. From, from an engineering perspective, it is kind of elegant and like, you know, it's, it's a simple solution to the problem. But, you know, we looked at that and we realized, like, this just isn't going to work. I mean, this data is valuable. Like, you need to have a way to actually compensate the owners of that data, you know, for providing it. So that was kind of one of the, the key insights that, you know, led to the design of PIP. Um, another insight was just that, you know, real-time data is important. I mean, you need data to be fast and low latency. Like, high-frequency, low latency is really important in, in trading and basically any financial application. And you know, uh, oracles on the blockchain were updating at like a frequency of one hour. And we knew that it just wouldn't be possible to build really interesting financial applications if your prices are delayed by an hour. Um, so, you know, another really key emphasis for, for Pith was basically making sure that we had, you know, high frequency, low latency prices that we knew would be required, right? I mean, like part of this was just, we wanted to do something that would be good for the ecosystem. And we knew that like the ecosystem wouldn't be able to develop these cool applications without those 
that kind of data quality. Yeah, it is remarkable how valuable data has actually become, whether it's in AI or on the blockchain. I, I think people <laughs> used to sell their data for a couple of cents and now they're a little bit more protective about it. And I think people and perhaps uh, the PIT team realized that very early on, especially kind of being on the market side and doing high frequency trading. Uh, that market is that data is extremely valuable and kind of needs to make sure that it's compensated correctly for that data. Yeah, it's 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 totally true. And like, you know, this is why we kind of built Pith with the sort of first party data model where, you know, all the people who own the data are actually the people who publish the data to Pith. So, you know, they're directly connected to Pith. They're providing the data. They own it. So they're allowed to do that. And then like, you know, the Pith mechanisms are supposed to reward them for doing so. Right. So there's actually a uh, sort of a an economic incentive to doing it, right? As opposed to it just being like free. Yeah. In terms of kind of Pith's unique angle in this compared to other industry practices, can you maybe dive a little bit deeper into how Pith decided to partner with these publishers versus kind of the legacy model of how people were bringing data? Um. Yeah, I mean, so as I said, you know, we knew that we'd have to basically compensate the the owners of the data, right? We knew that would be important in any sort of, you know, long-term Oracle project success, right? And so, um, you know, this was, we were at Jump and um, basically we just started having some conversations and, you know, this is not, this is not my wheelhouse, you know, I'm, I'm the technical guy, you know, we have great salespeople who do a lot of these conversations. So I can't tell you exactly how they went, but, you know, they reached out to, um, you know, some other financial firms, some other trading firms, and a lot of them were actually interested in doing this. And um, so, you know, we got, got a few on board and it's kind of snowballed from there. Um, what I can say about this is that there's a couple different things that, that I know, at least that, you know, those kinds of traditional finance firms and stuff have found interesting about the process, which is that there's actually a lot of curiosity, I think, in that space about crypto and like people are kind of looking for ways to get involved and um but you know it can be hard for them right their regulatory barriers things like that so pith was actually a very uh, easy way for them to kind of like get their foot in the door and um build some experience on the team with you know crypto setting up a wallet custody like all these kinds of things which are you know they're new right so um i think that was actually an angle that a lot of people found compelling um the other one is that there are actually financial firms who have data who are not currently monetizing it. Like a lot of trading firms have very accurate pricing for, you know, the price of assets because they trade them, you know, multiple times a second. So, you know, they know what the price is, um, but they're currently not monetizing that data. And so Pith actually gives them a way to monetize that, which is interesting for them, right? It's like found money. Yeah. Both of those are fascinating. I, I think to your point, uh, blockchain has either been scary or there's not been a good financial reason to actually dip your toes in the water, even though you're intellectually curious. And by allowing that solution of one, to incentivize parties to be more willing to share that data and two, get a small window into what the next iteration of finance technology looks like, uh, it's a compelling pitch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's been, it's been pretty successful. We've had like a uh, pretty dramatic growth in, in data providers. We have a lot of, you know, big name traditional finance firms on board. We have a lot of the big, you know, crypto exchanges, trading firms on board as well. Um, so we've been adding like, you know, a couple of publishers a month, something like that for the whole time we've been around. So it's been a, been, been a pretty compelling pitch, I guess. Yeah.
Yeah, uh, very impressive nonetheless. Maybe shifting more from like the marketing side to the technical side, that l latter aspect that you mentioned of making sure that the data is fresh, real time, as low latency as possible. would love to kind of parse apart that and how the Dural Labs team created that within the PIP network. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. And, you know, we had this goal basically of having, you know, low latency, high frequency prices. And um, at the time, what we thought was, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to build Pith on basically the fastest blockchain that we can find because, you know, the fastest blockchain is going to give you the best latency and frequency, right? And so that was Solana. So we built Pith on Solana. We launched our initial version on Solana, um, quickly grew to basically kind of have the entire Solana market, most of the Solana market. I don't remember the stat offhand. But, you know, pretty much all the major protocols on Solana use PIP today. And so that was kind of our first um, first big success as, as a project. But um, we knew that, you know, even when we were starting the project, that uh, it wouldn't be enough to just kind of be on one blockchain, right? Because, you know, the state of the world, I mean, especially if you look at it today, the state of the world is there's so many different blockchains out there. There's so many different technologies. Um, it's really not clear how this is going to play out. Right. Like, are we going to live on EVM rollups or are we going to live on these monolithic blockchains like Solana or maybe like Aptos? Like, who knows? Right. So um, and, you know, it could be the case that there are different choices that make sense for different applications. Right. Like maybe it's really nice to have move if you're building X and, you know, you want to do something else for Y. So you could see this playing out a bunch of different ways. And like as an Oracle, you know, we thought the important thing is we want the data to be available for developers um, wherever they're building, right? It doesn't make sense to just build it on Solana and only serve the Solana developers. You want everyone to have the data. So um, so we kind of had this goal even from the beginning of kind of expanding out to other blockchains. Um, and so we, we recently, not, maybe not recently, maybe about a year ago, kind of took the, took the step to do that, where we designed this kind of new uh, PIPnet blockchain with this pull architecture that's kind of allowed us to be really, really scalable to lots of chains. So PIP is on 40 something blockchains today. You know, it's, it's a number that's growing all the time and um, powering apps, you know, across them. So it's been pretty great. Yeah, it, it is rather remarkable. I mean, supporting 40 different architectures <laughs> is no easy feat. And one thing that you mentioned was really that kind of caught my eye was that pull model. Uh, from the technical standpoint, I, I think uh, Pith was the first to do so, or one of the early uh, kind of pioneers of this model. Can you compare kind of the pull model to what was happening kind of traditionally in these Oracle architectures and why the pull model is much better? Yeah. So, you know, maybe to take you back in time, like, we kind of made this decision to to create this pull model um, about a year ago. And the the reason that we did it was because, you know, we had this desire to kind of go to other blockchains. And we thought about the economics. So the way other oracles worked at the time is, you know, they're what we call push oracles now, which is they would basically have, you know, some off-chain service that periodically updates the on-chain price, right? So it sends a transaction, pays some gas, updates the on-chain price. And um, we were actually thinking about, doing that. We're like, okay, great. You know, we do that on Solana. Let's do that everywhere else. And, um, but we started thinking about it deeply and we realized that the economics of this just like did not make sense because when you're running a push, um, a push Oracle, you know, every single time you update the price, you pay some gas fee to do that. Right. And this and actually just for the is, normies yeah. that like don't understand what push means. That's just publishing the transaction to the chain, regardless of anybody requesting that information. Correct. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. Basically, the Oracle is, you know, running a service, which like every 10 minutes is going to submit a transaction, right? You submit a transaction, you pay gas, right? Something like that. And so, um, so, okay. So the, the problem with this was like, we look, we realized like, look, what, what do people want from an Oracle? You know, they want lots of price feeds, right? They want lots of different assets so that whatever asset they want is one of them, right? Uh, they want lots of updates per second. You know, they want it to be updated high frequency, right? They want, um, uh, they want uh, they want it on lots of blockchains, right? I mean, they don't really necessarily want it on lots of blockchains, but they want it on their blockchain for sure, right? And so, you know, all of these product attributes, like if you think about operating the push oracle, like every single one of those costs you money, right? I mean, every time you list a price feed, like suddenly you're paying more to operate this thing, um, you know, all the time, right? If you want to do more updates per second, like suddenly you're paying more and you want to do more chains, you're paying more, right? So if you actually look at the offerings of kind of these push oracles, they're very fragmented, right? It's like, look, we've got a hundred feeds on Ethereum, but we've got eight feeds on Avalanche, you know, something like that, right? And like the reason for that is fundamentally that, you know, every single one of these feeds is an operating cost. And it's a hard decision for them to like say yes and like add more stuff. And so, you know, we didn't want to be in that position, right? We didn't want to be out there and having to make these like kind of product compromises um, in order to like basically make the economics make sense. So we thought about that a bit and we kind of said, look, what if we could come up with a model that takes this like operating cost and basically converts it into a fixed cost, right? So that there's no, you know, added cost to like, you know, add a new feed or increase the updates per second or whatever. And so that's kind of where the, the pull model came from. And the way that the pull model works is uh, basically PIP has a whole system, which we can get into, which, you know, basically takes prices from data providers, combines them, you know, creates this like signed price payload, right? Which basically says, this is the pith price at this time. Here's some signatures that you can verify to validate that it's authentic. And those prices are basically, you know, they're just streaming all the time, but they're not on the blockchain. You know, they're just, they're, they're coming out of a decentralized system and they're just hanging around, right? There's a peer-to-peer network. You can listen to it. You can grab them. And uh, then what we do is we say, look, if you want to use the pith price, uh, there's a contract on your favorite blockchain. What that contract does is you can give it one of these payloads. It'll verify the signatures. And, you know, if everything checks out, it'll say, okay, this is an official pith price at this time, and it'll save it on the chain. And then you can basically read that price, right? So the way that we um, envision people using this is basically, uh, we call it the pull model, which is whenever someone actually needs a price, they go and retrieve one of these payloads. They put it on the blockchain themselves. It's a permissionless operation. Anyone can do it. Uh, They put on the blockchain themselves, and then they use it, right? And so that way... Uh, basically, the Oracle is not the one paying the gas. It's actually distributed to a bunch of different users who are, you know, they're submitting transactions anyway. I mean, they're already paying gas. It's not like we're, you know, making the cost of this crazy more expensive or anything. And um, it basically distributes the cost to to the users of the thing. And it also makes sure that um, nobody's paying for updates that nobody needs, right? So, like, we can list assets uh, or price feeds, right, today. And, like, if nobody uses it, it's fine. It's not like anyone's paying money for that, right? Whereas with the push oracle, every single one is, you know, paying for these push updates. It is, uh, it seems rather simplistic on the surface, but the unlock was rather massive in terms of cost, the savings, the distributions, uh, the engineering complexity between all the changes. It's, it's rather remarkable how some simple things, uh, the pull versus push, can unlock. Yeah, I, I mean, it's totally true. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and be like, yeah, this is some crazy, complicated idea. I mean, it's a pretty simple idea. It did not take us all that long to think about it. You know, like it came to it came together in like a couple of days where it's like, oh, why doesn't it work like this? Yeah, that works. Like, OK, let's do that. Right. Like it was pretty simple. But um, definitely the 
the the scale that Pith operates at today just would not have been possible if we hadn't come up with this pull model. Yeah, it, it's a lot of data that you can be publishing to ch the chain for sure. In terms of maybe diving a little bit deeper, can we touch upon like PitNet and some of the underlying architectures that you guys decided to do there? Yeah, so this is kind of getting into basically, you know, we have the pull model and this is kind of getting into like, how are those price payloads, you know, that are being streamed in this peer-to-peer -peer network? How are those constructed? And, you know, we wanted to do this in a decentralized way, right? We're building a decentralized protocol. We wanted to make sure that, um, you know, everything that goes into the system is decentralized. You know, that's important, not just from like a principles perspective, but it's also important from like a reliability perspective and a security perspective, right? Because you don't want um, a single entity to be able to basically manipulate the price or anything like that, right? So the decentralization is actually core to the kind of whole value prop of the product. And so we want to do it in a decentralized way. And um, what we came up with was basically, so, you know, we were already running Pith on, on Solana. And so our initial proposal was something like, well, why don't we just keep running it on Solana and then we'll, you know, bridge the prices from there to other blockchains. Um, but, you know, we, we realized that this wasn't going to work for a couple of reasons. Um, one is just because there's this operating cost thing, right? Where like, again, we'd now start paying for more feeds and that could be a problem. Um, the other one is just, you know, Solana has been super, super successful, like with a bunch of communities that are like not Pith. And that's great. That's great for Solana. Um, but, you know, the chain does get congested at times. And like, that's not great from the perspective of like, hey, you're on Ethereum, you want to have a, a reliable price update from Pith, but Solana is congested because someone's minting like this hugely popular NFT. So uh, tough, right? Like, so that's not great. So um, we just wanted to kind of come up with a system that really got us to that fixed cost thing instead of having still some variable costs. And um, also just, go ahead. Do you think, uh, I mean, I, it was interesting uh, when I, I've done a couple podcasts with Anatoly now, and he was like, uh, one of our biggest kind of learnings was how the blockchain actually was used in production. And uh, in hindsight, it probably seems obvious, similar to like, the pull model versus the push model, but like doing localized fees. Uh, and that was not yeah. enabled initially within the Solana blockchain and eventually later added. And I think uh, now like the other high throughput blockchains like SWE and Aptos do similar things. Would yeah, that yeah. kind of alleviated some of those early issues that uh, Pith was experiencing? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, I think I think it's worth it to kind of highlight the timeline on this, right? Which is like, if you remember last summer, I mean, this is a long time ago, right? But like last summer was kind of when we're making these decisions. And it was also when these issues were like the most prominent on Solana. So like yeah. that, like that definitely factors into your decision making at the time, right? I mean, I think Solana actually really props to them. I mean, I think they really have a, a really solid engineering team who's like sat down and solved a lot of these issues and like things are much, much smoother now. I mean, we still have the push Oracle on Solana today and, um, you know, we know, right. We, we see all the congestion and stuff as part of that. And, um, it really has worked a lot better since, since they kind of rolled out the local fee markets and stuff. Yeah. I, I'm curious. I mean, it definitely makes sense from a engineering point of view and building out PitNet just for the fact of supporting as many blockchains as possible, having that like single uh, network be able to do the distribution and then having it on like one other blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. Right. So just to get back into it, basically we're like, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to set up our own blockchain. It's called PitNet. You know, it's a fork of Solana. So it runs the same code base, but it's, you know, totally independent network. Right. And the, uh, 
the data providers basically run the validators of the network, right? So they are, um, you know, they're already contributing data. They can just run another piece of software, right? And um, basically we run, you know, all of the logic on that network that like takes data provider prices, combines them into sort of the PIP aggregate price. That all happens on PIPnet. And then what we do from PIPnet is we basically bridge the prices to other chains using wormhole. So, you know, wormhole is this like decentralized message passing protocol where it allows you to basically communicate between blockchains. And the way it works is they have a network of, um, I think, 19 guardians where they basically monitor the state of the chains and they basically sign messages that attest that the state is whatever. And so, um, so basically we have those guardians and they're basically signing messages saying like, these are the the PIP prices at every point in time, right? Taking those aggregates and creating these signed price payloads. And then, uh, yeah, that plugs into the pull model, right? So users can basically grab those payloads, put them permissionlessly on target chains and use them. So maybe just to kind of re-articulate for my knowledge, I mean, ultimately two components of PIP network. One is kind of that pull model that we've been kind of discussing in length where someone can request a price that is then that price is already on PithNet from a number of data providers that the Pith um, network works with uh, that is signed and kind of can be verified. And then for whatever blockchain you're requesting on that then moves through wormhole, uh, kind of a generic messaging processing bridge that will deliver the price to the end developer that requested the update. Yep, yep, yep. Interesting, very interesting. I guess like in terms of like this tech stack, like has there been any surprises, I mean, in working this, seeing how it actually works in production? I, I think uh, when I talk with a lot of like either layer one or layer two founders, they're often surprised by the workloads that they'll see in production versus what they thought they would have seen. Any parts in your tech stack that are the uh, pit tech stack that has kind of surprised you? Um. I don't know. I mean, I think we kind of knew going in, you know, we'd been running the Oracle on Solana. The, the PitNet Oracle is very, very similar code base wise. So like we kind of knew um, how that would look, you know, running some of the Solana validators has been, it's a little bit of an operational challenge. You know, they're, they're pretty complicated to, to run and like they need a lot of bandwidth and stuff. So there's definitely some, some work that, you know, people have to put in to kind of make that work smoothly. Um, but I think, I think things have gone pretty Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I've seen a ton of surprises there. We don't have like, you know, other people coming in and computing like on PitNet, right? It's just us. So yeah. um, I think that that part has been fine. I mean, I think like the, you know, the flip side of this, though, is like you, you got to ask, like, what are the users of Pith, right? And like, I think there's probably been some surprises there. And maybe diving into that, what type of applications pr predominantly use Pith and I guess any predictions on <laughs> new uh, companies continuing to onboard with Pith? Yeah, yeah. So I think the big, um, been a couple surprises there. I think, you know, one of the big surprises for me has been just like how popular perps are, right? So, you know, I think this year has kind of been like the year of perps, right? Like there are perps exchanges just everywhere now. And like that didn't used to be the case, right? I mean, you had a couple last year, but um, it's really the trend. And, uh, you know, I think that was surprising. And I think it's actually interesting because I think you know, a lot of those purpose exchanges actually use Pith. And I think Pith has kind of uh, just made it a lot easier to build that kind of system, right? Because if you go back in time, people were kind of rolling their own oracles to get that 
if you're a purpose exchange, you need a really high frequency price update, right? A high frequency, low latency, because, you know, you're using it to mark all these positions. And so, um, so if you go back in time, people would have to basically build their own Oracle. And like, it's actually pretty hard to build a high frequency, low latency Oracle, right? So it's just like the technical lift required to, to launch a purpose exchange is, was just way bigger then. And like now, now that you have better Oracles like Pip, um, you know, you can see the trend of like people launching these things, right? I'm not saying it's easy now, but it's certainly easier. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating to me just watching the underlying technical stacks kind of shift from these earlier networks being much lower throughput, have longer block times, longer finalities to these much higher throughput ecosystems that have much lower latency. And when you do that, you also have to upgrade everything else in the tech stack to make it also high throughput and low latency like oracles. And I, I think we're going through that entire process. And then once you do that, what type of unique applications can leverage all those components? And I think the analogy that I kind of use is going from dial-up to broadband and then fiber optics. And you can build new types of applications that you couldn't build on a dial-up type internet. And blockchains are interesting enough, I feel like are going through a similar transition. Yeah, I, I totally hear you on that. I actually love taking these sort of like early computing type metaphors to blockchains because I think they're they're quite applicable and I think there's a lot of lessons you can learn there. Like even um, you know, even like like things where it's like, hey, someone had this idea in the nineties and it was a total failure in the nineties because like nobody was connected to the internet. And but like, you know, it was obvious I mean, I mean, it's like the kind of thing that seems like a good idea, you know, pets.com, let's buy pet food on the on the internet. Seems like a great idea, right? And it's like, actually, it is a great idea. You just have to wait 20 years and call it Chewy and it works, right? So like, it's. I think there's a lot of that that's going to happen here too, where like, as the technology improves, like the applications that people built version one of in 2015, where it didn't make sense, like suddenly makes sense, right? 100%. Any uh, favorite analogies that you have uh, that you could share? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is sort of like, you know, how is compute going to work in the future in the blockchain, right? Because you know, I said this before, but like we have this very fragmented situation right now where you have all these different blockchains, these different um, runtimes. And it uh, it seems to me like the, well, you know, it seems to me like the 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 vision of maybe some folks initially when they're building blockchains is like, look, we're going to have one blockchain. Everything is going to run on the one blockchain. And, um, you know, that's fine. And like, you look at that and it's like, look, there's not like, there's no, the blockchain is basically a, a single computer, right? So it's like, there's not going to be a single computer for the entire world. Like, there's just not enough. There's no way to make that computer big enough so that everybody has, you know, their fair share on the thing, right? So I think about it, like those kinds of blockchains are basically like, they're basically like mainframes, right? It's like a shared computing environment that everybody sits down and works on. And then you kind of reach this stage where it's like, hey, like now all of a sudden it doesn't fit on this one mainframe. Like, what are we going to do? Right. So now we're kind of in this phase where it's like we're creating all these different chains. Like it's kind of more like the PC era. Right. Where it's like you get your own chain for for your own application. That's actually more like, you know, there's all these roll up as a service kind of things right now. Right. Where you get your own app chain. Like that's very much like the PC kind of era of things. Right. So I think that's kind of an interesting trend. Um, I think there's probably some broader lessons you can tease apart there, which I, I haven't from like, you know, how this is going to evolve in the future, because like, you know, it didn't end the PCs, right? I mean, we went to cloud, there's distributed systems. I don't know what that looks like in crypto. I don't know if we need that. Seems complicated. Yeah. yeah. That was going to be my next question. If uh, kind of like the modular roll-up landscape or 
application specific chain is like the PC era. Do we go back to uh, a few central, not central, but uh, kind of five key players in terms of these big cloud providers or five big VMs that people kind of agree upon and are predominantly used yeah. within these ecosystems? Yeah, yeah. I think the um, I think the VMs probably do uh, consolidate because, like, you know, there's a really strong network effect to the APIs of the virtual machine, right? Like, I, I mean, I see this uh, all the time because, like, you know, it's like, look, EVM, right? Just by virtue of being the first, I think has a lot of backing behind it. There's a lot of people who built tools for it and things like that that just like every new VM has to build, you know? And it's like, sometimes it's stuff that you don't even think about, but is actually really important. Like, for example, like you want a multi-sig, you want to have a multi-sig on your network, right? Like, well, someone has to build that if you have a new VM, right? Whereas on EVM, it's already built. Or like software libraries for just doing kind of common things that contract developers want to do. Like you have that in EVM. So um, I think that the network effect around some of these um, blockchain runtimes is very strong. It's kind of like the same as like, you know, Right now, how many operating systems do people really use, right? It's like Windows, Linux, Mac, right? And like, you don't really run serious software on a Mac. I mean, it's like a PC, but it's not like, you know, you're running servers with Mac OS on it, right? So um, so there's like really two. And, um, you know, there were definitely more competitors back in the day, right? It's just the, the network effects are really strong. So I, I think the VM, like the runtime environments, I think consolidate a bit. Um, the... Uh, yeah, in terms of like, you know, how many instances of those runtimes are there? I mean, I don't know. My expectation is that there's going to be a lot because like, you know, the history of computing is basically that like people just want more of it, right? And like it scales both vertically and horizontally. It's like, look, yeah. we have this one network and it does 100 transactions. Now it does 200 transactions per second. Great. But I want 5,000, so I'm going to spin up 20, right? Like, Yeah, I, I, I totally agree there. I, I, I think uh, the human desire is really you can't you always want more uh you're always going to kind of need more bandwidth uh to propagate that data you're always going to need more compute or more cores uh i am personally kind of biased towards the architecture designs that lean into that philosophy of just like scaling bandwidth and scaling compute just because to your point i, I don't know if there will ever be if you give an engineer more resources, I think they'll figure out a way to utilize them. 100%. And like people will say, oh, it's cheap enough now so I can deploy my new application. And then like you start seeing new apps or whatever, right? I mean, you know, there's a name for this, right? It's called Jevons Paradox. It happens with like roads and things like that, right? Um, so it's just, yeah, it's just the way of the world. Yeah, it is fascinating. I guess in terms of just where you see not the blockchain landscape, going forward, but more so just like Pith Network and things that you're excited about at Dural Labs. Are there any kind of behind, not behind the scenes, but how, what future insights would you like to see or future product requests given to the network? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I'll tell you a bit about like what's kind of going on now or what's sort of top of mind, um, which is... I got two things. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of stuff happening, right? There's a lot of new blockchains, things like that. Um, but two, two major things I think are, you know, one is decentralized governance, right? So with, with the uh, token launch and everything a couple of weeks ago, we also launched decentralized governance. So, you know, token holders basically control the protocol now. 
And, um, you know, that's fine from a technical perspective. They control the protocol, but there's a whole social layer to that, that like people need to decide on. And like those people aren't me. I mean, it's the community of token holders, but, um, figuring out how, uh, how that sort of social governance process is going to work, I think is really important. And, you know, at Dura Labs, we've gone through governance processes on a number of other protocols where it's like, hey, you know, integrate Pith and like, you know, you talk to the stakeholders and things like that. And, um, you know, we've gone through effective processes, we've gone through ineffective processes, right? So I think getting this right is like pretty important for, you know, the health of, of the network as a whole. And so that's definitely something where, um, you know, we have some thoughts about, you know, how it should work. Right. We have to like go talk to talk to other other stakeholders and kind of come up with some consensus there. But that's definitely something that that's top of mind for us for us to work on. Um, we've got a uh, another thing that's kind of happening, kind of interesting thing is uh, Pith is launching a, a random number product. So this is live in testnet. You know, it's not not a secret, but um, it's live in testnet on a couple of networks right now. But this is kind of a new new area for us. You know, random numbers is like pretty much the most common thing that people ask for when, when they're talking to Pit, like the most common thing we don't support. So um, it's kind of cool to like finally be able to scratch that itch. And we have kind of a different take on random numbers than than other protocols that have come before us. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I would love to dive into that a bit further because I actually uh, just recorded a podcast with Avery, who is the CTO of Aptos. Uh, and they're going to be working on some random numbers as well uh, built into the protocol. So I, I, this is the kind of a couple times that I'm hearing about it now and love to dive deeper into why are random numbers exciting? Why are people uh, now focusing engineering and efforts to making this happen? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think random numbers have been used on the blockchain for a number of applications already, right? I mean, people really want them for um, for like NFT mints. You want to decide, you know, the attributes that each NFT gets or like you want to do like some sort of raffle or something like that or, or games, right? Games are a big one um, for these kind of random numbers. So there's a bunch of different applications that want the random numbers. Um, I think in terms of like, you know, people have built solutions for this also, right? We're certainly not the first people to, to try to solve this problem. Um, and there's like a lot of different technical approaches to, to doing random numbers on the blockchain. Um, maybe just to say a, say a word about this, actually, which might not be obvious is like, you know, if you're a computer scientist and you're listening to this and you're not familiar with blockchain, you might say like, why is it hard to generate a random number? I mean, like, you know, on your computer, you just type RAND or whatever and you get a number. It's like, fine. Um, but the, the thing about the blockchain is that the, the state of the system is deterministic, right? So basically every, if you just ran the computation on the blockchain, um, everybody would be able to know what the random number is before it was generated. And like for things like an NFT mint, like you don't want people sitting there or trying to game it where they're like, okay, look, the number is going to be seven and that's a good attribute. So quick, send a transaction, right? Like you want it to be unpredictable. Um, so, so that's kind of the reason why it actually requires, you know, some engineering work and it's not just some trivial thing. Um, now, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know why maybe now in particular is a time that people are paying attention to it. I mean, I do think that the high throughput trains have um, created an opportunity for like games and things like that to come on the blockchain. And I think that's the place where like you'll see serious usage of random numbers, right? Things like NFT mints are sort of one-offs. So it's not like maybe it's not the most compelling thing to, to serve. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, it uh, the gaming aspect it kind of, to your point on like random loot or uh, making sure that it's actually truly random and not 
someone able to gamify the underlying technology or to gain an unfair advantage or even uh, one thing that blockchains have been kind of popular for is gambling. Uh, If gambling people ultimately want to use randomness, uh, that is very important. Yeah, and I think that I think one of the things that's actually interesting here is you can have like provably fair random numbers, right? So one of the um, one of the properties of the protocol that you know Pith is developing here is that the user can, as long as the user is honest and they participate in the protocol, like following the rules, they can guarantee that the result is random. Like they don't need to trust the protocol, they don't need to trust you know anybody on the other side. It's like all they have to do is behave honestly, and they know the result is random. Right. So that's a really cool property. I mean, like, that's something where, like, if you go to the casino and you push the button on the slot machine, I mean, maybe it tells you your odds of winning are 1%, but like, hey, you don't really know. Right. Whereas, like, in this case, you can actually know for sure. That is very true. Uh, I think uh, it's one of the exciting things about the blockchain is kind of the provableness of it. Uh, You don't have to trust per se, you can also verify. Yeah, for sure. And the transparency, I think, is very, very powerful, you know. Actually, another another maybe thing on transparency is like uh, like for for Pith, for example, right? You know, we have this blockchain Pithnet where all the data providers are aggregating their prices, and like this is fully transparent. I mean, it's it's a Solana network, and so like you can actually you know view the state of the system like using a Solana Explorer. So like you can actually go and like see all the prices that people are, are contributing, and you can see like exactly how Pith works, really, right? So like I think that's a really cool property of the system that like I don't know. Maybe it's discounted, right? Or like, it's certainly different from like Web 2, where it's like totally opaque. 100%. In terms of kind of where you see or where you kind of see the industry going for like the next year, I think it's been, unfortunately or fortunately, the industry is very cyclical. We've had a lot of ups and downs with uh, bull markets, with bear markets, with large players, ultimately, (laughs) taking a painful death is there anything that you're either learning lessons or things that you're trying to uh avoid things that you've taken away from like the past couple of years man um <laughs> i gotta say the biggest lesson for me is you know leverage is dangerous like i knew that but like man it's really dangerous and uh also people will take a lot more of it than you expect that, that part really surprised me the last time around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's maybe not a lesson for, for developers. But, um, you know, the, the thing I'll say is, like, you know, we've been in this little bear market. Things are feeling a little better right now, I think. Just, you know, the um, some of the Pith folks were at DevConnect and, like, they were, they were pretty bullish over there. It seems like people are pretty amped up. But, um, you know, it seems to me like people are still building software and, like, doing the work and like, that's great. And, um, I don't know. I, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm happy they're doing that. I'm happy. It, they'll probably do more of that in the bull market and, um, just try to keep your head down, you know, and like, like focus on, focus on building and like, don't get too, too worried about the token prices. Right. Yeah. <laughs> token uh, prices are hard not to look at. Uh, they often bring people in, uh, people, they can be distracting a lot of shining new objects, uh, within not only crypto, but within tech, I think for people that are engineers specifically that are interested in the industry and want to make a jump similar to you, 
uh, from like AI or any other field that are interested in blockchain technology from the engineering point of vice or engineering point of view, is there any advice that you could give those individuals to kind of get, dip their toes in the water? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say, first of all, if you're interested, you should do it. Like this has been by far the most fun job I have had. Like crypto is just, it's a great space to work in. It's, um, it's like tremendously collaborative, you know, because like it really is, uh, it really is an ecosystem and there's a lot of different, you know, companies and people who are working on different things and you have a lot of opportunities to interact, um, you know, not just within your organization, but outside. And like that part's been really, really cool. Um, you know, it's all open source development. So like you can actually write code with people who work somewhere else. And it's like, it's really cool. Like it's really a fun job. I would highly recommend it. Um, in terms of like, you know, what to do, like, I guess like the thing I'd say here is like, you know, this is like a meme last cycle, right? Like it's early and like, it is actually still early, you know, like there aren't that many people who know what they're doing in the blockchain space. It's, it's a relatively new field. So like, you know, I wouldn't be intimidated by like saying like, you know, I want to do blockchain, but I don't know anything like, you know what, just jump in, you know, go write some contracts. Like, Pick, pick a blockchain. I don't care. Pick whatever blockchain you want. Like, go deploy an application, right? Like, you'll pick up the basics pretty quickly. And, like, you can become, you know, pretty knowledgeable, like, in a year or two, right? I mean, like, you can basically reach kind of the edge of, like, maybe application developers on the field, right, in a pretty short period of time. And, like, that's really not true in other areas, you know? So I think it's a great time to get involved, like, while it's early. Uh, you have an opportunity to make a name for yourself. So we definitely encourage you to just jump in and do it. I, I couldn't echo that more. I think uh, when I got involved in 2017, I kind of felt like I was late, but I, I really felt early again when kind of 2020 and DeFi summer was going on just because I started to actually play around with SQL queries on doing analytics and started being like, all right, how many active addresses are actually in these blockchains? And it's very few. Uh, and to your point, I mean, you can become an expert in the field relatively quickly if you kind of focus on the correct things and put in the work. It is complicated, uh, but it, if you're interested and want to learn more, it, you can definitely make a name for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, it's, I think it's, it's always good to be um, just like in a, a nascent and growing space. You know, if you move into a space that's like, older, has more of a history to it. Um, first of all, there's just a lot of ramp up time to like learn to kind of get to the edges. And then secondly, like there's already a lot of people who are like, you know, well-known experts. And it's like, it's just harder to break into those, those ranks, you know, whereas like if you join something that's early and growing, like that, that's sort of a, uh, whatever, you're sort of riding a bigger wave. Right. And like, you kind of always want to be doing that. Hey, I, I couldn't agree more in terms, maybe, uh, wrapping up, are there anything that you feel like we miss in the podcast or did not cover from like a technical side, a community side, uh, any last like tidbits that, uh, we miss? Man, that's an open-ended question. Um, let's see. 
I mean, I can't think of anything offhand. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Framing it another way, if, yeah. if people were to take a kind of like one or two like main points from our conversation or this conversation, what are the biggest things that you feel like people should come away with either from Dural Labs or PitNet and what you guys are building there? Yeah, you know, I think... Um, you know, I think we're building a really interesting kind of new take on oracles, right? We're really committed to some of the, uh, you know, kind of crypto principles of decentralization and things like that, which I think, you know, in the oracle space are, are maybe, let's say, not respected <laughs> as much as you would hope. Um, but like, you know, we really are trying to build a decentralized oracle with, you know, sustainable economics for all the parties involved and like, you know, have this work, high frequency, low latency, all that stuff. Um, I think, you know, one thing that I would like to, I guess, maybe this is a thing that people forget a lot, which is like, I think, you know, on crypto Twitter, people always go and they're like, you know, Pit, that's a Solana Oracle. But like, Pit is really a lot bigger than that these days, you know, like, actually, the majority of the applications that use Pit are not on Solana. And, um, you know, we're on 40 blockchains, like, it's it's a very different world than it might have been a year ago, like, if, if that's when, you know, you last heard about Pit. So um, definitely would encourage like developers, especially come come check it out. Um you know, we're available on Discord, Telegram. Shoot us a note if you have questions about integrating. Um, but it, you know, it's, I, I guess I think it's a good Oracle. Like, you, you know, check it out. <laughs> check it out. Perfect. Well, yeah. we'll end it there. Uh, thank you so much, Jant, for coming on the podcast. Uh, finally, excited that we made it through, uh, got to record this one and uh, excited for the public to listen to it. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me, Logan. Thank you.